Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. So you're listening to East Leeds FM, Love the Words, and this evening we're talking to the poet Andrew McMillan. Hello, Andrew. Hi there. Really lovely to uh, to have you with us on Love the Words. And um, I'm going to embarrass you by reading uh, um, a few things out about your illustrious uh, illustrious career. Andrew McMillan's first collection, Physical, was the only poetry collection to ever win the Guardian First Book Award. It also won a Somerset Maugham Award, an Eric Gregory Award, a Northern Writers Award, and the Aldborough First Collection Prize. And I'm not going to go on uh, because there's quite a lot there, and quite rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, um, I don't know if... I mean, the last time we probably met was at Chapel FM in the old days. Do you have any memories of Chapel from, Chapel from that time? It was just, I remember so much. I remember doing the kind of 24-hour radio-a-thon stuff. And I think I, I volunteered for, always kind of, or you gave me kind of maybe 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. I remember doing that and then getting the first train back from Leeds to Barnsley after we'd done that. And also just doing a lot of the... Um, the schools work, so kind of working a lot of those um, kind of primary and secondary schools around East Leeds, and we'd get to kind of bring the kids in to the, the kind of space, and they'd get to record their, their kind of radio shows. And it just felt like it always felt to me that space, like just a really important community hub where a lot of that, that work was taking place. Mm. And you were, of course, you, you were referring to the chapel, Mm. Uh, as it was, because uh, you know, I've, I've, have you been to the new the, the new building? As it were, I don't. Mm, I was trying to think this. I don't think I because when since when has it been new? I guess. Um, well, it's five years, so I don't think you years. have. I don't think I have. I, we were in the old vestry. I remember this very well. Yes. Sort of crouching over, freezing cold in the middle of the night. I, I, my recollection is you actually did the whole night, but maybe I'm just <laughs> <laughs> just took over the whole thing. I just, well, I don't know, but just glamorising the whole thing in retrospect. But I think um, certainly it was in a time when pigeons were uh, were kind of flying yes. through the roof. But now it's very beautiful. We've kept that space, but um, obviously, and, and kept the features of it. But um, we've put in a sort of floor, so we've got two floors. We've now extended into uh, the old Methodist's headquarters so we've got a big hall a cafe anyway you must come sometime and and read there Andrew oh yeah that'd be fantastic it'd be great, great to come back so um first of all we're going to be talking about pandemonium this this new collection uh but um yeah first of all how's how's the last year been for you if that isn't too massive a question I mean you know the cliched stuff first I guess it's just been incredibly strange incredibly surreal I've gone through peaks and troughs of anxiety around it. I was much more worried kind of before we did that first lockdown. It was almost like someone described it as being at the top of a roller coaster and looking down and you could you could kind of see what was about to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. And then once you're in it day to day, it becomes kind of slight, just, you, you just kind of get through that next day and that next day. You know, I've been incredibly lucky that I teach at the uni, we've been able to work at home, I haven't had to go out to work and things like that. So I felt very protected in that sense. I haven't really been writing. I found reading much harder. I've just been doing a lot of audio books, actually, because I found that just somehow easier. Mm. I, f I found myself just in, unable to concentrate on, as I used to be able to, on, on just kind of sitting and reading for pleasure, which, is, which has just been an odd thing. And I think it's just because of the kind of weight of the world kind of pushing in, really. Absolutely, yes. And, uh, I mean, was most of Pandemonium written before the, the pandemic, in that case? Yes, yeah, so it was all, um, and we'll talk, I, I guess, about some of the subjects of it, but it was written mostly as it was being kind of experienced. So kind of almost before, began, some of it began before the second book kind of existed in a way. So... Um, so kind of maybe from 2016 onwards and and there's one poem in there that I was asked to write for for Manchester Met uh, my university that 
kind of was written in March 2020 and so at the very beginning of the pandemic and that's the very newest poem in the book the rest of it is kind of very much pre-pandemic but I like that word pandemonium I kind of didn't want the pandemic to ruin it for me um, and so I thought that I would keep that and also I think it's just interesting how you know you, you write as with any art I think you make it in the context that you make it but then it arrives into the world in a new context in the context of that world and so I think a lot of the the ideas or the themes of the book will just be received in a different way because it arrives into a different world than than I wrote it in. Well, I, uh, along with Alan Bennett, as recorded in his diary, <laughs> re read it in one sitting, and I remember exactly where I was. I'd just gone for my first jab, and I was sitting in the uh, the cafe, empty cafe, of uh, very early in the morning, actually, of <clears throat> village gym uh, in uh, uh, in Headingley and uh, it's funny how places become associated with the reading and intense experience of reading one has in a place but um, yeah so Andrew first of all it'd be great if you could read uh, maybe Passion Play which is one of the first it could be the first poem in the in in the collection absolutely Passion Play Open audition to be held in the corridor of a one-bedroom flat. Let me walk you through it first. Start in the living room, a slow deliberate procession to the bathroom. We need someone with experience of movement, who understands how best to capture that writhing across the tiles to try and get the bleach. We'll need someone to play the bleach, someone light enough to pick up who won't mind being thrown around, and we'll need a drummer for the exact sound of a head banging against a stud partition wall. We need someone for the clothes piled up in the corner to be sat in whilst weeping. Someone for the lock, for the nurse down the line. Someone for the door. Thanks, Andrew. Um, it seemed to me, reading it all the way through, that it, the whole collection was a kind of extended love poem, uh, a kind of passion play, really. I mean, was there a through concept for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad it reads like that as well. I think the danger of, or the fear that I had about writing a book like this was that it would feel the opposite of that, that it would come to feel kind of quite craven or quite exploitative. So that idea of it being a kind of a long kind of love letter, I think, feels quite nice. Um, I think th there is, there is that kind of through thread, I think, of, you know, thinking about kind of mental illness, thinking about um, how how that can often very quickly intercede on kind of perceived notions of kind of calm and things like that. Um, but I guess more than the other books, it it's almost as though, I guess there are two ways of thinking about it. Either it's that kind of one long thread from beginning to end, or the other way I sometimes think about it is that that kind of central ideas in the middle and each of these kind of poems or sequences is sort of trying to throw itself in, trying to find another way into it, almost like they're spokes on the kind of hub of a, a kind of bicycle wheel or something like that, that that central idea is in the middle. And each of these kind of sequences, each of these long poems is a way of sort of trying to reach into it in a different way, maybe. Yeah, the body. I mean, you've written about the body in a, in, in a, a great deal in the first two uh, collections but you know particularly physical uh, mm. the first one but uh, it seemed to me here that the body was a, a, a was central in terms of the fallibility the vulnerability of the body and the kind of idea that we can strengthen our bodies and be strong in mind uh, the kind of the fallacy of that really would that be would that be about right I think so I think that's really true and I think also this idea of I mean, the challenge of writing about any kind of um, abstract idea or kind of unvisual idea, such as something like mental health, which is held so incredibly internally and is also very unique to everyone that in, um, experiences it. And so there might be some kind of commonality between experience, but everyone who has kind of suffered with their mental health or has lived through certain things will have experienced it slightly differently. So it's it's hard to know or hard to find a kind of language to reach for um, be without it becoming too abstract or too kind of vague. And so 
just as I always do, it felt as though, well, it has to come back to the body. And so what does it look like? So a lot of the description in it isn't necessarily about, in, in the book, isn't necessarily about how, like what that mental state is like. It tends to be, as I guess it is in that first poem that I just read, well, how does that manifest itself in the body? And kind of how does that begin to show itself to the world, I guess? Mm, and it felt very much as if, yeah, the body was a kind of metaphor, really, mm. for... Uh, for the for, yeah for the vulnerability the fragility of the mind I, I love the um I, there's a quote from a poem in the section called training i know this it, that this could be my greatest folly to think if i made myself stronger i could save anybody yeah um, yeah i love that I, mean, I wonder if you could read another poem actually it's it's um, one of my favorites in the collection and it's on page six i don't know whether that accords with your PDF that you're reading from. It begins e each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It begins each time with a quiet withdrawal from the self, as though the body steps back from its own skin, folds in on itself, and without its wall of bone behind it, the skin becomes too sensitive to touch. And the brain begins to crease into smaller and smaller squares, making itself less visible, the way animals might when under attack. And the washing piles up in the basket, and the hair isn't cleaned for days, and each time it dawns on me too late what is about to happen. I say something unconsidered, and you lay down weeping in the hallway, curled up by the door like a draft excluder so yeah andrew tell us about swan and the <laughs> idea of of the swan because again the, for me there was a, there there is the whole idea of the dying swan you know swan lake um there's a there's is there is imagery around falling falling mm. and the falling swan i mean the falling bird uh, tell us about yeah the, the the place of the swan in the collection. Yeah, so swan I think is probably one of the weirdest things I've ever written. It's kind of quite out of character for me as a poem. Um, I went to see Swan Lake. You mentioned Swan Lake. The kind of I went to see Matthew Bourne's kind of reimagining of Swan Lake, and it's this astonishing kind of queer retelling really of of Swan Lake. It's got a kind of male cast. The the choreography has been shifted and, and the music's the same, but it becomes this kind of tale of of someone who can't accept, or this is how I read it, someone who can't accept who he is, someone who kind of really struggles and kind of how they, how he kind of finds his way through that, I guess. And I was just kind of beguiled when I saw it. It's one, it's one of the most, you know, we have those kind of moments in, of art where we see something, we see a film or an art exhibition or in this case a ballet that just somehow lodges itself inside you and I just started turning those ideas around and and writing about them and and I was writing, I, I always write in, in silence or like with the ambient buzz of the world I guess and this was the first time I tried writing to music, I kind of listened to that that last kind of movement of Swan Lake when everything kind of comes to a head in, in Tchaikovsky's score. And I just kept listening to that over and over again and thought, what, it, what is it to write that? What is it to kind of write that? And what would that feel like? And I don't think I could write this poem again. I don't really remember writing it. I think I wrote it at the first draft of it over a kind of mad feverish weekend a few years ago. Um, and it's just one of those strange things that just kind of every so often I think as writers as poets comes out of us and we're not sure why but it, it then seemed to find its place within the kind of wider stuff that was happening in the book as well I guess it sounds slightly Kubla Khan-esque and I'm glad there wasn't a person <laughs> from Pollock who interrupted you <laughs> <laughs>
So that was a section of the ballet by Tchaikovsky, Swan Lake, relating to the section of Andrew McMillan's Pandemonium, a collection of new collection of poetry uh, relating to the idea of the swan. The swan. So, um, yeah, Andrew, I, I really, I mean, the, the, the section about George is, is poignant, very moving. Um, but I, and I don't know whether you want to say anything about that. It was um, it was incredibly sad time um, when it happened. It felt to me um, so. I, I guess the first important thing to say about this is that my sister read it before it was in the book and gave permission for it to be published, and that felt really important. Mm. That I just sort of gave it to her and, and her husband and said, "Look, I've written this. It, nothing has to happen with it. It can stay in a drawer forever. It's my way of working through that grief. Mm. But see what you think." And so, and that felt important on an ethical level. Um, it was just one of those things that was the sadness for me, you know, the layers of sadness that surround something um, like that was the kind of une- was the sudden and unexpected nature of it, and so there wasn't a sense that anything had been wrong during the pregnancy. It was just kind of one of those kind of things, one of those kind of acts of nature that that no one can prepare for or, or stop, mm. and. Um, yeah, and we it, should say that this is this so relates yeah. to to the the, the death of, of your nephew, your sister's child. Just before, in case people haven't read the collection. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so in in um, in, in childbirth, um, and so it, it seemed to me, and I think I don't know if we ever talked about this explicitly, but it seemed to me that the, there was a collective decision that. And people deal with these things in different ways, but that we would talk about him as though we as though he had been here because he had been, and so to to give to to name him as George and to um, to kind of to to hold him in that memory as you would anybody else that had died, and so that's why that name, you know, the poems named after him, um, and that's why it felt important, I guess, to use that name, and it just became again as so much is in that collection about a kind of false sense of security that I guess I thought I had or this false sense of of things kind of going along in a certain way and then something like that just comes along and you're reminded of the kind of randomness and kind of violence of nature which in in many ways kind of not um, day-to-day life shields someone like me from but then it, it just kind of arrives and the last line of that poem that idea of nature comes knocking on the door the idea of it just suddenly arrives um, in a really unexpected way, which then, of course, is also the pandemic, which is that weird thing about the book being published in a new time, that the, these things where the the kind of imaginary kind of layer of, of protection that we imagine we have in day-to-day life, nature and the natural world, and more and more at the minute, can suddenly just kind of undercut that in ways that then make us feel, I think, really vulnerable. Well, that brings us on to the, the, the final section of the book, which I really enjoyed, uh, Knotweed, and because it seems to me very much about the, the incomprehensibility of nature, the, un, uh, the unpredictability, the entangledness of things and of human, and so that's standing for the, the entangledness of our relationships and and uh, the, of human stuff, uh, so I really enjoyed it, and and uh, and I, I'd love you to read if you would. The I think it's uh, it's called. It begins how my evenings. It's on page fifty nine. Fantastic. How many evenings have I thought the garden done? Walked out and seen fresh clumps of weed mithering the dirt. Some people cannot tell the difference between what should be there and not. I'm one of them. Ignorant till one thing overgrows another or gets choked. There is always something needing to be tended. A small salvage down in the muck. I've grown to think if I go out at night, I might catch them at it. But the soil lays still beneath a harvest moon that is the size of your sadness. Then growing... Waxing until its whole face peers over at our house, pockmarked skin like a ploughed field picked clean of all its crops. Still, you will not come outside. 
And yes, I love the line about I'm one of them ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true, like, you know, I've got my my mum's a really keen gardener and so can come and kind of point point at things and know exactly what they are. Um and then my dad always asks this what well, is actually quite a philosophical question. He says, Well, who decides that that's a weed? Because actually it's quite pretty. And then and there's no real answer to that other than, well, it just is. Um but and you know, so the entire thing about not weed. So we bought the house a few years ago. There's a, there were a load of not weed in the garden, um, which kind of terrifies the mortgage company. So it's this kind of um, species that can grow through concrete and things like that. So it terrifies kind of mortgage companies, and it's really almost impossible to get rid of. The, the a man in a kind of red hazmat suit had to come every few weeks and kind of drop really kind of dangerous stuff chemicals on it that kind of scorched the ground just to try and get rid of it i think it's mostly gone now um and it was that so the not weed in that sense of it being untreatable and always beneath the surface i guess became that metaphor for a lot of the kind of mental health stuff but then just as you're saying that kind of uncontrollable kind of nature of the garden like at the minute because it's been so wet and now it's so sunny like I thought I was kind of on top of stuff out there but then you leave it a week or so because work's busy or you're not around and then suddenly you kind of go outside and it's just kind of bedlam like it's just gone mad and everything's kind of growing in a way that is at once both really beautiful but also because it's kind of uncontrolled feels also quite scary sometimes and I guess I'm just fascinated by that by that kind of twinning of those two things, I guess. I also really like the way that you make the garden, as you do with the human body, so kind of knotty and yes. strung and 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 physical and and sort of baffling too. And I, I I suppose for me there was a sense in the collection, as a whole, of of really not being. Uh, an expert on the human condition or or the garden condition by extension that that we are all including the poets stumbling about in all this stuff i think that's the thing and i think it's just it's such a i think it's the to me more and more i think when you when you first start out or when i first started out there's a sense in which we want to kind of have a certain swagger and kind of declare things and be very kind of um kind of strong in the voice of the poems because that's what, or certainly that's what I kind of felt a poem should be. It should kind of tell me some great truth. But then more and more you kind of realise, I guess, or I've realised that, you know, human beings, as you're saying, are so uncertain and so unsure about everything that what happens if you let that uncertainty into the poem? And certainly, you know, trying to care for somebody and live beside a lot of quite severe mental illness that I had no training in i had no kind of lived experience of you are you feel an expert and you feel as though you're just trying to do that day by day do the best that you can you know read around it get help from professionals but really just day by day try and survive and try and keep things kind of moving along and that that space of uncertainty not knowing the answers to me is just a much more interesting place to write from and it, it gives the poems or gives any piece of art I think a certain kind of fizz it just it feels alive because it's almost like walking on a tightrope and this might not work it might not work but you get to the end of the poem you get to the end of the day and then you start again you start the next one and that kind of journey begins again and uh, yeah there's a there's a poem which again I'd love you to read in a minute in where you talk about coal, discovering some mm. coal in the garden. And I, I suppose for me in that poem, there is this sense of what you're talking about, this kind of you have to be patient, that, you know, you, you, you try and be useful and you do the wrong thing. Or, again, we're, we, we're, we're sort of stumbling about in the dark. We don't know about how, how another person is in their mind, what might happen next. And, and uh, if I could quote, I think you're going to, if you could read the poem, that'd be brilliant. I, th hmm. it, uh, I think it works. I think, sorry, I think it starts working the socket. But, yeah, um, yeah. If I could just quote the last few lines, how patient some things must learn to be before they're useful, which I think is a really lovely line. So if we could hear that poem, Andrew, yeah. Definitely. Working the sockets and the knotted joints of shrub roots up and out of the soil, 
digging through the jumble sail of glass and bits of rock that seemed to grow beneath the surface. A worm searching for its severed end flatlines, then restarts itself. Nothing unexpected, as I plant the tree my parents bought for us. But then my spades strike something heavier, folded in the creases of the earth, nuggets of coal. I ease them out, pitch black, but still able to reflect the sunken light. And at once I'm burrowing back to the fireside of my childhood. How patient some things must learn to be before they're useful. I feel like in that final two lines, I'm like channeling Mary Oliver. It's a very Mary Oliver thing to sort of say these kind of grand statements out of nature. Mm. Um, but it was true. Like I was kind of planting this tree. My parents had got us this apple tree. I was planting it in the garden. And just, it, it's such an old garden. It's an old house. And so there is underneath just this like, just these layers of like bric-a-brac of like glass and old pot and all that kind of stuff that just somehow ends up in the garden. And then to find this coal was just such a strange thing. And it must be either either the coal shed used to be there and that's just some of it that's buried or the coal shed would have been in the other yard and they've just kind of dumped it there as it's got moved because it, there was so much of it kind of concentrated in one place that it must have been dumped. Um, but or maybe I've just discovered a new coal scene in Moston <laughs> and I'm going to be rich. Take me outside, sit in the green garden, nobody out there, but it's soaking now, bathing the sunlight, don't mind if rain falls, take me outside, sit in the green garden. of a butterfly hides a treetop down again put my bag down taking my shoes off walking the carpet a green velvet Sunlight. 
So that was uh, Green Garden uh, by Laura Mavula, chosen by Andrew McMillan, uh, who we're talking to today on Love the Words. And uh, yeah, and it kind of follows very directly from the last section in Andrew's new collection, Pandemonium, about uh, which is called Knotweed. So Andrew, yeah, just more generally speaking, going back a few years, where, where, where did where did poetry come from for you? It's interesting. I think about this more and more. I mean, obviously, um, because of who my dad is, Ian McMillan, I grew up in a house of of poetry, and that I think is interesting. Not in the sense that it, you know, I was never encouraged to be a poet. I've got two older sisters who aren't at all interested or involved in this world and look on it as something quite odd and strange which it is um <laughs> but what it meant was that i saw it as something tangible i saw it as a living thing that people did and so not only to kind of grow up around contemporary poetry but to grow up with someone for who that was a job who would go out as a freelance writer and kind of make a living doing workshops or schools or kind of youth center gigs and stuff like that and and just that to me was so interesting that um, I guess to see it as a tangible thing that someone could do was incredibly important I think in in the early days and then you know whatever your parents do is embarrassing and so even if they were James Bond (laughs) you'd never want to be that right and so for a long time I ran away from it I wanted to be a politician I wanted to be an actor I kind of thought about all these different things but always kind of got kept getting led back to poetry somehow just through reading it just through the enjoyment of reading it and then having a go at kind of writing it and kind of doing bad imitations of the people who I loved when I first started reading and then it just kind of grew from there really and it became the thing that the the way that I was making sense of the world and that just became something that I wanted to to pursue I think and is that story true about um, Ian putting poems in your lunchbox when you went to school? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's weird because I feel like... because So we grew up in the village just outside Barnsley. We just kind of went to the local secondary school that was, that was in the village, which was in many ways, you know, kind of really quite a difficult kind of school to be in um, in terms of kind of behaviour and resources and all that kind of stuff. And when that kind of story is told, like I feel like mostly kids who would get sent to school with poems in their lunchboxes would be in a classroom of other people whose parents also sent them to school with poems in their lunchboxes, <laughs> right? And it would just be like a normal thing. But it was something that kind of, and it was definitely very other um, within that sort of space. And then later on, um, he had a, Ian would write a kind of look, a column for the Barnsley Chronicle just about kind of local things and would mention me and I think I got to the age about 13 or 14 and there was one where he'd said he'd gone to BHS to buy me some new underpants and at that point and then my friends at school would read it and then tease me about it and so at that point I had to kind of say no stop just don't mention me for a few years um, until I get through school and then you can kind of do it again um, so yeah so it, you know it was just um it it was something that I kind of had at home and therefore kind of, but then knew that it was, it's that weird thing. I think when you first grew up, whatever the world you grow up in when you're very young, you be, you just assume that's normal. That's kind of the kid's way of kind of viewing the world. And so I assumed that for a few years then got out into the world and found out, oh, actually no, a parent that's a poet is quite an odd thing. That's quite an unusual thing. Um, but then you know, still to have that kind of grounding and that opening into that world was really important. And apart from Ian, uh, were there any mentors or encouragers for you who were particularly significant? That's a good question. Um, I mean, a lot. I mean, it's interesting. So my... um, I had a lot of really good teachers at school who not necessarily encouraged the poetry, but just encouraged me within that quite difficult space to kind of do the very best that I could and and kind of got me involved in school plays and things like that. One of my history teachers at school is, um, well, was um, Steve Eli, who's now a kind of really successful published poet. I didn't know he wrote poetry when I was at school, um, but that was really interesting. He was always a great kind of history teacher for me. And then I went to Barnsley College to do my A-levels. And in particular, I always remember um, an English lecturer called Debbie West, Dr. Debbie West, who sadly passed away. But she was just really um, 
influential in, in just the way that she would teach. She taught me Larkin, first of all. Um, and then we did Tis Pity, She's a Whore, um, the play, and just the kind of text that she taught. But the way that she taught them, I always found that incredibly inspirational as well. By the way, uh, the, the, there is a lovely, well, I assume is a Larkin uh, parody in in pandemonium am i right <laughs> yes there is and i got really worried that people would think that i was plagiarizing larkin and so i i had, I had to stick his name in the acknowledgements and say by the way i do know that this is larkin but then they forgot to print that so um so that's coming out in the reprint the extended acknowledgements are coming in the reprint of the book right no it's a it's a, it's, it's the line about groping groping your way down the what is it the hallway Yes, as if you had had a piss, which I loved. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, yeah, you, was there a moment then in which you thought, right, this is the way I'm going to go with that it is going to be poetry for me, or was it a gradual kind of, yeah, a sort of gradual flowering? It felt like a gradual thing to me. I was when I thought it was politics that I was really interested in. I was all set. I thought I should apply to Oxford and do PPE because that's what people seem to do and that I would kind of pursue that. And then the more and more I thought about it, I just wasn't excited about that. And I thought I just wanted, I knew, I knew I wanted to go to university and I knew that I liked reading books. I thought, well, I'll do English literature. And and so I went to Lancaster and, and did English with a kind of, a unit in creative writing, a kind of module in creative writing um, that was just mainly kind of workshopping, workshopping stuff. And I think it just happened gradually. Like I just found myself writing more and more and enjoying that side of it more and more and then slowly sort of starting to send stuff out when I was at university to, to magazines and stuff like that. I mean, obviously you've, you've done a lot of work in schools and you know in in community contexts you now teach in a university is that an important part of your 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 life as a writer i think so i loved it and i miss it in some ways like i mean the thing is so yeah so i was freelance really from when i left university just because i couldn't think of what else to do and so i thought well i'll try and sort of sell these skills that i know i have around poetry around writing around facilitating which is often just a kind of charisma of being able to hold a space, right? Mm. And when I first started out, I wasn't great. I think I got better at it. And some projects are easier than others, aren't they? And some projects go better than others. I remember some of that school's work that I did for East Leeds FM, feeling quite hard and, and struggling with it, but, but kind of persevering with it. For me, and my own anxiety, kind of being freelance was always just too, in terms of like the financial side of it and that the the kind of continuity of the work, I just found that too difficult, which is why I ended up kind of stepping into academia to a certain extent, just for something more secure, really. And in many ways, you're doing the same kind of work, just with a different kind of demographic or group of people. Um, but I loved it. And I think, you know, the thing that, one of the things that my dad really instilled in me was this idea, well, everyone can write, everyone can do it, everyone's voice is important. And where people are from, their own lives are worthy of literature, their own lives are worthy of poetry, their own accent, their own voice, their own lived experience. And so to do that in communities, I just, oh, I used to love it and, and I did enjoy it. It's just, I'm not built for that kind of, the exhaustion of that freelance life. Like there were moments when, I was working up in Newcastle, but I was also working down in Weymouth. And so I get up at kind of 4am, go up to kind of Newcastle or Middlesbrough, come back, go down to Weymouth. Like it was just, I just mm. couldn't, some ways I really loved it and I was young and it was fine. But in other ways, I just didn't, it, I was never kind of built for that, I think. But um, but I miss it and I try and find ways in universities that to leverage the to kind of use the leverage and the kind of weight of the university in terms of being able to get pots of funding to then be able to kind of carry on doing some of that community work just in a slightly different way, I guess. Well, I, just a, just another question around... The, I mean, I know that you, you obviously really enjoy working you know, with people, with young writers. We mm. work with young writers uh, in East Leeds and more generally throughout Leeds I think it's for for some people I work with I think that I did the I the confidence the that what you just mentioned there in terms of Ian that that people's lives are worthy of literature are mm. can be written 
by by those people and uh, and that that kind of sense of entitlement i suppose validity is very hard to instill i mean yeah <laughs> how do it's you do it <laughs> it's incredibly hard isn't it and it's but it's interesting particularly with poetry poetry in kind of our culture is is incredibly marginalized right very few people yeah. read it very few people would go and buy it and yet somehow paradoxically to that it occupies a really high status for almost everybody and so one of the things that you know we get asked a lot isn't it is oh, i'm going to a wedding or i've got a funeral coming up can you think of something i could read mm. and so we have a sense of poetry still being a moment of high occasion or the way that that poem went viral after um, the manchester arena yeah. attack and things like that we do have a sense that poetry can speak to kind of collective moments of mourning all these kind of high status moments and so somehow that is lodged in the back of people's minds i think even from very young and so to give people access to just writing their own version of that i think is is still incredibly empowering for them it still says something about it still is able to then elevate their life experience and i think the other thing is just giving people permission to to rewrite the narratives that are imposed on them either as individuals as communities as certain groups of people that the kind of state or society or the majority says well these people will think like this these people will behave like that and that can be quite silencing if you feel that actually your narrative runs counter to that and there's something about writing that again for these young people in some of these communities allows them to to speak back against that imposed narrative in a way that is endlessly exciting i think that's uh, that's great to hear actually yeah and i i totally affirm that <laughs> um we we're coming up towards the end of our uh conversation and it's been great to have you um on love the words just briefly i mean are you, any current obsessions for you in terms of people you're reading that's a really good question. Um, I'll tell you, the person that I'm really excited about that I just put on our syllabus for next year is um, an American poet called Joss Charles. So J-O-S and then Charles. Um, and they're a, um, a trans poet in America. And they've written this astonishing book called Field, which is F-E-E-L-D. Um, it's not got a publisher over here, but it's quite easy to get hold of. And it's written in this astonishing kind of... Um, part Chaucerian um, English, part kind of text speak, part kind of um, Americanized kind of slang vocabulary. And so you almost have to hear it read out loud to tune into what it's saying on the page. But when you do, it's just quite astonishing. It's one of those books that, you know, every, you know, there are always good books of poetry. And then every so often something comes along that it seems to me just moves it on and says, well, actually, this is what it, this is what poetry could be. Or this is what this is a new idea about what it could be, and that's just one of those books that that I think has really done that. So it's called Field. Field, F E E L D. Lovely, and Joss Charles. Yeah, great. Okay, well, we'll I've just written that down. <laughs> but um, yeah. So finally, Andrew, it'd be great to hear one more um, poem, if you would, mm. from uh, Pandemonium, which is published by Cape and has been out what a month or two. A month. Yeah. Yeah, just about now. Yeah. Um, it'd be great to hear the last poem, which is one of my favourites, if that's okay with you. Yeah. So there's the moment of hope after some dark darkness in the book. <laughs> Descending into the honeycomb cities, I am returning to the ground already wetted by the transient rains. All the windows of our house are wide open. Climbing the stairs is like reaching my face into the fridge. The bedroom is alive with your breathing, the clattering teeth of the blinds. Outside, the night is perfectly tuned, slow forcing of the plum trees and their fruit, buzz of motorbikes on the roads. Undressing to land beside you all night, the winds come over us like intermittent water. Ben, I'm not sure what I mean by this, but I'll spend my lifetime coming home to you. Thanks, Andrew, and thanks so much for being with us today on Love the Words. Thanks for having me. And we must definitely uh, have you back at chapel sometime. You can come and uh, come and see what we've done, and maybe, well, we'll do whatever you like, but it'd be just lovely to see you. Yeah, that'd be great. Mm -hmm.
Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So that was Andrew McMillan talking about his new poetry collection, Pandemonium, available from Cape. So, this last ten minutes, I'm going to feature a track. It's by Bob Dylan, who was 80 recently. I'm not a massive fan of Bob Dylan, but I do love this track, and I have to say I love the words. I'm going to feature a few other songs in subsequent Love the Words episodes that, for me, somehow exemplify a lyric that is arresting in some way for whatever reason and you might have your own judgments about that i first heard this track uh, when i was about 18 and i was staying in a flat on the third floor of an old house in paris on the rue de la saint genevieve i was at the uh, i was at a very important moment in my life and Somebody put this on in a tiny little room where I was um, staying and uh, I've never forgotten it. With your mercury mouth in the missionary times And your eyes like smoke And your prayers like rhymes And your silver cross And your voice like chimes Oh, who do they think could be? Your pockets well protected at last, and your street car visions, which you place on the grass, and your flesh like silk, and your face like glass. Who could they get? Lady of the lowlands Where the sad-eyed prophet says That no man comes My Lady of the Lord 
together said I'd profit say that no man comes By your gate Oh, sad-eyed lady Should I wait The kings of Tyrus With their convict list Are waiting in line For that uranium Like this, but who among them really wants just to kiss you with your childhood flames on your midnight rug and your Spanish manners and your mother's drugs and your Cowboy mouth and your curfew plugs. Who among them do you think could resist you? Said I'd lead you up the lowlands where the sad eyed prophets say that no. Farmers and the businessmen, they all did decide to show you where the dead angels are that they used to hide. But why did they pick you to sympathize with their side? How could they ever mistake? The blame for the farm But with the sea at your feet And the phony false alarm And with the child of the hoodlum Wrapped up in your arms How could they ever have persuaded you The sad eyed prophet say that no man's come. Now 
you stand with your thief You're on his parole With your holy medallion And your fingertips knotted fold And your saint-like face And your ghost-like soul Who among them could ever think He could destroy you Said I'd lead you the lowlands Where the sad I'd prophet say that no man comes Now I leave them by your gate Oh, sad-eyed lady Should I wait 